Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is episode six. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran Taurus, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. On this episode, I was so excited to interview Yesenia Medrano, who is a fellow badass Salvi lawyer, and she also does deportation defense. We talked about her experiences growing up as a Salvadorian American woman in Tucson, which is predominantly a Mexican American city. We also talked about the pros and cons of the pro se model, which is a model that was created in order to fill the gap that's created by the fact that migrants don't have a paid right to counsel in their deportation proceedings. And finally, we talked about the importance of mentorship for women of color. If you all like what I'm doing and want to support, then you can either donate to the Patreon, which is on radiocachimbona.com, or you can Venmo, Cachimbona underscore pod. Also, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes, which really helps with us gaining visibility. Please follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio Cachimbona, Twitter at Radio Cachimbona, and Instagram at Radio Cachimbona. Thanks, y'all. Enjoy. Hi, Radio Cachimbona listeners. I'm here with Yesenia Medrano, a really badass Salvi lawyer who grew up in Tucson, Arizona. She's here to share her experiences growing up in Tucson, as well as to talk about the importance of mentorship for women of color. And we'll also get in a little bit to the pro se model and recent litigation and the settlement that occurred regarding pro se litigants and how attorneys are able to help folks out. So, Isenia, do you want to just give a little quick intro? What do you think are the most important things that a Cachimbona listener should know? Sure. So, as Yvette mentioned, um, I'm an immigration attorney. I'm working in Seattle now. Um, I've been an immigration attorney now for almost three years. And prior to... I'm, I'm from Tucson, Arizona, so after law school, I worked in um, Tucson or Arizona for two years and then moved back to Seattle and I've been there since June. Yeah, we can leave it there if that's okay. <laughs> that's all we need. Okay, cool. So what was it like growing up in Tucson, which is a predominantly Mexican-American city, as a Salvadorian-American woman? That is a great question. I think at least my experience was just with a lot of people not even knowing where El Salvador is. <laughs> yeah. Or, or wanting to know where in Mexico El Salvador is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I've always identified as Salvadoran American, and I think when I would identify myself as Salvadoran American in middle school, in high school, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of explaining um, that El Salvador is not part of Mexico. And, you know, a lot of lack of knowledge of kind of what... Central Americans in general face, mm-hmm. even in Mexico when they're migrating to the U.S. And then it, even here in Tucson or like in the Southwest, um, I think there is still a lot of discrimination against Central Americans by uh, Mexicans. Mm. 
And it's kind of ironic that that's the case because Tucson was the birth of the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. The, in the 80s, there were a lot of Central Americans that were migrating here for a variety of reasons. Specifically, uh, Salvadorians were immigrating because of the Civil War. And Tucson was the birth of churches getting together and providing sanctuary for folks uh, during that time period. And so I was, I always kind of wondered why the birth of that occurred here in Tucson, but then now there aren't that many Salvadorian Americans here. Like I, when I first moved here, I tried to find a pupuseria and I was really bummed that there wasn't one. The only way I know to get pupusas is like actually from another woman named Yesenia who recently immigrated here and like she sells them out of her house, but that's it. And I was wondering why that would be because I figured some folks would just end up settling here if they were given sanctuary. Yeah, I think, at least from what I know, so my dad came in the early 80s during the, the Civil War in El Salvador, and um, my mom actually moved to Arizona from the East Coast and then became really involved uh, with the sanctuary movement here. So that's kind of how they met. And I know at least from what they've told me is that a lot of folks who were traveling up from Central America um, already had contacts in other parts of the United States, and so a lot of what the folks who were organizing the Sanctuary Movement did was uh, try to help folks just kind of, you know, get to their final destinations, get on the plane, get on buses to go where they were going. And I think probably another issue was, you know, the amount of discrimination that they faced, that Central Americans faced here along the southwest border trying to be away from the border as well, yeah. especially in a time when, you know, the U.S. was not being very friendly to Central Americans. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of fear just because of, like, the civil wars and, and what kind of people were coming into the United States, how Central Americans were viewed, which at the time they were viewed as, like, communists and dangerous and, you know, trying to overthrow the government. So I think that definitely had a lot to do with it. And... My dad, when he came, so my dad uh, stayed here in Tucson with my mom, and, and this is where I grew up. And I know that my dad has told me that when he first arrived, he was the first person in his family to come to the U.S., so he really didn't have anybody else. And he, he crossed the border under, a, like, riding underneath a train. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he just kind of decided to get off of the train at one point and it ended up being here in Tucson oh wow so that's how he ended up here and I know he was homeless for a time when he was first here because he didn't know anyone and ended up starting to get some work as a landscaper which is what he does now and when he was first starting he found a, a Mexican family that allowed him to stay in their shed while he was you know kind of getting on his feet and kind of the way that he was able to convince them to allow him to stay was by saying that he was Mexican. Oh, wow. And then he, at the time, was corresponding with his mother by mail. And his mom wrote him a letter. And obviously it said that it was from El Salvador. And so the people he, that were letting him stay there uh, confronted my dad about it. And he ended up having to leave. Oh, wow. Um, because they did not want to be helping or be viewed as um, helping Central Americans. No. And I think there was like a lot of fear around that at the time too. Because this is off of the USCIS website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
1985, a group of religious organizations and refugee advocacy organizations filed a class action lawsuit in federal court against INS and EOIR, which is Executive Office of Immigration Review, and the United States Department of State. This is actually the churches who filed the lawsuit. Oh, interesting. It's called American Baptist Churches v. Thornburg. And, right, so the plaintiffs were alleging that basically the immigration courts and um, Department of State were discriminating against Guatemalans and Salvadorans um, in the way that they were adjudicating their asylum applications by basically just denying them asylum because the U.S. was funding, you know, the civil wars, the the governments uh, who were fighting against their people in those countries at the time. So we need to revive that litigation. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the the U.S. is basically just kind of blanketly denying asylum applications for folks from Central America. Well, that continues to happen in Arizona, in Southern Arizona. I've seen it happen. So, you know, we need another church to come forward and also bring forward such litigation. So growing up as one of the only Salvi people here in Tucson, did you have Salvi mentors growing up that made you want to become a lawyer? Or like what what role did mentorship play in your life and your desire to become a lawyer? When did that start for you? Yeah, there were so few Salvadorans here that I knew, other than my dad and (laughs) (laughs) my aunt. (laughs) I did not have any Salvadoran mentors. I think I was really inspired to, you know, advocate with the immigrant community just because of my parents' background. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing up here in Tucson, where, you know, immigrants are constantly discriminated against and we just have so many issues along the border that don't even get paid attention to because we are so busy you know trying to advocate with immigrants for like relief just immigration relief that we don't even have time to get to like all of the abuses that the border patrol commits Mm -hmm. so i knew that i wanted to do something related to advocating with immigrants and i remember in high school it was on may day we organized uh, a rally and some students walked out (laughs) for may day and i think that was just kind of like the beginning of like okay where am i going to take this what can i do Mm -hmm. i talked to a high school teacher um, who said oh you could be a lawyer (laughs) and it's funny how it just takes one person to put that in your head right yeah and then I was like, okay, I'll be an immigration attorney. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and yeah, every kind of step of the way, it's just, it just felt like it's kind of building on, like, getting to that uh, point. Cool. And wait, was the high school teacher white? She was a white woman. Oh, okay. Well, you know, sometimes that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the, the high school I went to... I don't remember any teachers being people of color. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I've talked about this a bit on the past episodes, how, like, we, it's, I've just learned to accept mentorship from wherever it comes because there's been times where it's actually been Latina women that have been the worst mentors for me, or, like, I wouldn't even call them mentors, the people that have, like, brought me down. And there's been times where, like, white women have been like my biggest stewards and allies and 
I think there's a lot of really complicated reasons for that and I don't want to see it but then I think it's so hard to like talk about this because I also don't want to erase all the really badass Latina women that have been my mentors and that's what I've I'm kind of trying to stay focused on as I'm transitioning uh, into new work is like I don't want to become jaded and, th- and think that I need to have my guard up with everybody because I I need to remember all the really badass Latina women I mean you included who mentor me and support me emotionally and remind me that I can do this work and that it's worth sticking around so that we can try and change the culture of the profession because I think a lot of the things about legal the legal profession are really toxic and I think a lot of it has to do with like white male litigators and their approach to the work and I think if we do stick around like there could there could be changes in the profession that make it less horrible mm-hmm. and I think just to clarify I think the mentorship is reciprocal we, we do that <laughs> for each other <laughs> oh thank you <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about the NERP settlement uh that just came out I know that you worked there and also that you had a cease and desist letter sent to you while you were doing pro se work in another organization uh, I wanted to talk about this because I wanted to use it as an entryway to talk about the pro se model, the pros and the cons, <laughs> and also what the effect of the settlement might be on the f- for the future of pro se work. So for folks who don't know, the Northwest Immigrants' Rights Project filed a lawsuit against the Department of Justice after the DOJ sent the organization a cease and desist letter, and the letter told them to stop assisting immigrants in deportation proceedings who don't have a lawyer. And the DOJ letter purported to rely on agency regulations that they issued in 2008 that require attorneys to enter a formal notice of appearance if they provide any legal assistance to persons in deportation proceedings. And what's unfortunate is that immigration court doesn't allow limited services once an attorney enters a formal appearance. I mean, you can, for example, limit your services to a bond only, or you can limit it to just the immigration proceeding. But other than that, you can't say like, oh, all I'm going to do is file a brief about this firm resettlement issue and then I'm taking my hands out of this. And so for that reason, uh, in a world where there are way too many people detained and way too few lawyers, there's the only option is to only help a little bit of or a few people with their whole immigration case. And now with the DOJ sending the cease and desist letter saying that you needed to enter a notice of appearance if you're going to provide any services at all, that meant that organizations that do abide by the pro se model are not, were not going to be able to provide pro se assistance. And so really the question of the lawsuit was how much assistance can an attorney provide to a person who is unrepresented without needing to enter a formal appearance in immigration court? And entering an appearance, just so you all know, is when you list yourself as the attorney of record and as a result subject yourself to the ethical rules of lawyering that all lawyers are beholden to. Lysania, do you want to talk about the formation of the pro se model and the history of it? Yeah, just generally. So I think one of the organizations that kind of started providing uh, pro se assistance or kind of the inspiration for this model was the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project, Mm -hmm. which started in Florence, Arizona. And from that model came the Legal Orientation Program, which EOIR formalized in 2003, and now the Vera Institute is kind of administering that program. But um, because 
it's a program through EOIR. Um, it is funded by the government. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to talk about that because you always need to follow the money to see like how, what a what a program is intended to be. And not that I'm against the government giving us money necessarily, but I think the fact that EOIR decided to formalize the program says something about the limits, the liberatory limits of the program. And even also for people who aren't like, I always give two, two viewpoints, like the abolitionist viewpoint, and then people who are like, you know, maybe identify as progressive and really care about due process. So even for the people who like are kind of more in the due process realm of things, like you should also be worried about the fact that EOIR funds this because the funding is limited. And as a result, it I kind of, I think there is a degree of complicity for folks who are utilizing the funding to provide pro se assistance because since the funding is limited, we're only able to serve a limited number of people. EOIR has, can say, can argue that due process exists in immigration courts. And just to like clarify what, um, what the expectation is when they say pro se assistance, it's essentially reading folks their rights, mm-hmm. um, informing them about different types of relief, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, providing or reviewing applications that they may be filing <laughs> in immigration court, um, and, and basically kind of like interpreting information for folks mm-hmm. in plain language. Yeah. And also to clarify, <laughs> when individuals are placed in deportation proceedings, you know, they are called into a room with a judge and have to sit in, in the courtroom and they all listen to the reading of their rights. Mm-hmm. So when you think of it, it's almost, well, first of all, somebody coming to the United States for the first time or any number of times who's never really been placed in any sort of like formal judicial proceedings or any sort of formal proceedings, having to listen to their rights being read to them in a recording, like how much of that are you going to retain? And then going to a workshop afterwards where you hear somebody repeating what your rights are, you know, it's, I've always questioned kind of how helpful that information is. Yeah. Especially when you're putting into plain language Mm -hmm. or trying to put into plain language what somebody has already listened to. Yeah. I participated in, I was interning for an organization that would rotate being the LOP provider in San Francisco, and things were really bad there because uh, we, the detention center that the San Francisco Immigration Court is affiliated with is in Bakersfield. Wait, do you know California? No, you're from Tucson. (laughs) (laughs) Bakersfield is like six hours away from San Francisco, and so as a result, like, the LOP providers are all based in San Francisco just because of how funding is allocated in California. And so the LOP providers would go to San Francisco Immigration Court and via VTC do the Know Your Rights presentation. So imagine doing what we did, but over VTC. When I was doing that, I was like, this is a joke. Because people would show up without pen or paper. And I always question, like, could how much could they really hear? How much of the, the video recording... So I, I always came in like already being skeptical of what the Know Your Rights presentations could really do. And even in a situation where you're there in person, I think it's really hard for folks to retain information because they uh, the guards don't tell them where they're going 
So people are coming like just generally disoriented and confused into the room. They don't come with pen and paper. They're not allowed to. And the detention centers give, I think, over provide ibuprofen and like other medications that kind of that are intended to sedate people. And so people are coming in groggy, not really alert and super anxious because they're in these deportation proceedings. They probably question who we really are. I, I've been able to tell from follow-up conversations with people that they think I'm affiliated with ICE. And, of, you know, of course they do. I understand why. So it, it makes me wonder, like, is this performance about... Is this a performance to be able to say, oh, we have due process? Or is this really a valuable presentation? And I've been told by some people to, like, not become jaded because know your rights presentations like can be really empowering and I have done know your rights presentations not in detention that actually do feel very empowering but I think with there's limitations to how effective it can be within a detention center for a variety of reasons right yeah I think that's I think I definitely agree with that and and when you like talk to folks who are in detention I mean I don't think most of the time, their number one like concern is not going to be what their rights are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They definitely have a lot of other things going on that they're thinking about, like where are my children? How do I get out of here as fast as possible? Yeah. That I think just like the even desire to retain that information is like not really there. Yeah, and I think when your time is so limited, it's really hard to go over all the type of immigration relief possible because. Like all the different types of legal relief are things that we spend years studying in law school and things that even like as a practicing legal professional are hard to grasp. So however, could we possibly condense that into like a 45 minute presentation, you know, even if people really did want to fully retain all of it, I think it's, it's a task that's too ambitious to really be effective. And I think it can be a deterrent as well, because if you're just coming into the United States or you're being placed in detention for the first time and you're hearing just like this overload of information and <laughs> you're super confused I think that it can also be like a deterrent to even like fighting out your case uh, because it can be so complicated and such a drawn out process yeah and I think um also I sometimes I also think that we might create disillusionment in people because like I say one thing and then the judge disrespects that right in the courtroom and you know I think immigration judges have too much discretion in what they can do and they're largely unsupervised or like they are supervised and that the attorney general controls a lot of what they do but other than that they're not held accountable in the way that maybe we can argue federal district judges are and so sometimes I feel silly of saying these things because, like, I've had people say, well, like, the judge got mad at me when I asked for that. Or the, well, you know, the judge just got really frustrated with me, and so I don't know what to do. It's like, okay, well, I can't really do anything about that, but this is a right that you have. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I think, like, we can all have our own opinions on whether or not judges are neutral, but... I would say immigration judges are probably like the least <laughs> neutral because again they're part of executive office of immigration review which mm -hmm. is all part of the government so I mean essentially 
immigration judges and Department of Homeland Security are like working on a team. Yeah, no, and I think that with Jeff Sessions and like this happened a lot in the Trump administration where I think they don't even care anymore about acting like fairness exists. You know, like he just straight up was like, don't give continuances to people. You know, and so how can we say that judges are unbiased, independent, and neutral when they have their boss, their like real boss, 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 head of everything being like, don't give people continuances and you need to make sure that you adjudicate X amount of cases in X amount of time. Like what that has to mean is that there's going to be due process violations occurring because there's lots of really good reasons that a person needs more time when they're detained. Like I haven't been able to contact my family. I haven't, as such, I haven't been able to get a lawyer. As such, I haven't been able to get all the documents required, the objective evidence that I need to present in my case. Like, well, all that doesn't matter because Jeff Sessions says, don't give people continuances. You know, it's like, yeah, like you said, I think whether or not the more quote unquote legit aspects of the judicial branch are neutral or not is another conversation, but I think we can just say immigration judges are not neutral. That's me, Eva Borja, saying that. Yesenia doesn't doesn't have to endorse that. I I endorse that in my personal capacity. (laughs) Okay, yes, same in my personal capacity. Uh, So I think it's important to point out what the pro se model is responding to. It's, It's intended to fix this issue that we face because our system is one where immigrants are not given a public defender, despite the fact that they do face prolonged detention and a potential deportation. And I say that because the values within our legal system as they exist now are that if you have the potential to be incarcerated, if that's even a potential issue, like outcome of your case, you automatically are given a public defender that the government funds. And I guess the pushback on this would be that those are rights that we grant citizens and LPRs, and these are not citizens and LPRs, so we don't want to fund money for that. But, but. <laughs> there are definitely residents in detention right and potential u.s citizens as well yeah no actually that's true and people might be confused about how that would be well first with lprs you and for anyone who is an lpr this is why you might want to consider adjusting your status depending on (laughs) depending on the particulars of your case is not legal advice (laughs) but if you commit certain crimes that render you deportable you can end up in detention and you will not have the right to a lawyer even though like i've met legal permanent residents who have been here for 30 years you know quote unquote legally and have been paying into social security and face deportation and once you're deported it doesn't matter that you are paying into social security for 30 years you just lose all that money and uh, i think that speaks to the different tiers of citizenship that we have in this country because the really kind of arbitrary distinction between an LPR and a citizen can make it so that you will be detained without a lawyer and also you're punished doubly for your crime which is something that supposedly is not supposed to exist in our legal system but legal permanent residents will serve time for whatever crime is rendering them deportable in prison and then will be transferred to an ICE facility where they face deportation. And as for how citizens might be detained, well, there are actually, there are people who have claims to citizenship who are detained. And like, for example, if they have a parent who is a U.S. citizen or a grandparent who is a U.S. citizen, there's various things that can make them eligible for citizenship. And if you don't have the proper documentation to prove that, it doesn't matter. You can still be detained and put into deportation proceedings. 
And so because of that state of affairs, the vast majority of immigrants in deportation proceedings move forward without a lawyer. This is really, really a tragedy because immigration law is a really complicated maze that's complicated for legal professionals who spend years studying this. And that is where the lawsuit filed by NERP, this is the context where it came about because folks, some folks, there's a school of thought that think, well, if we're not going to be able to provide everybody a lawyer, the least that we can do is provide everybody a little bit of assistance. And I think that there's pros and cons to this. I think that in a world of limited resources, we do what we can. And that's what the pro se model is. But I also wonder if it ends up being a barrier towards more impactful change. Because what if the response to the fact that the vast majority of folks are unrepresented is that we want to implement universal representation, like what's occurring in New York and San Francisco. Uh, I just wonder what the effect of a pro se model like this is, because I think it provides just enough of a facade of due process to make it so that we don't need to push for, or folks feel like they don't need to push for universal representation because what we have is okay. It's what we have. I would agree with that in my personal well, I think that organizations can have the pro se model, but I think we should be ad- like simultaneously advocating for universal rep and always expanding our direct representation capacity. You know, I'm not, I'm not like trashing all of it necessarily. <laughs> I think that it's just important to fight for books. And I think there are organizations. I mean, this has definitely been an ongoing conversation, and um, people are definitely fighting for universal representation and that is definitely the goal (laughs) but I think that the government has not been really receptive receptive to that model and so yeah I think it's um, kind of a question of like what is what is our next strategy to like really push this forward yeah because I think that so I worked for an organization called Pingia, and I remember that the attorneys there had a stance that was like, if that we they were like, we need to fight for due process because if due process was actually respected, we wouldn't have the capacity to detain and deport as many people as we do. And I think that that's a really important point because it's like, okay, this is too much money to provide everybody being detained and deported with a lawyer. I agree with that so i think what the results and conclusion of that should be is that we should put less people you know we shouldn't be putting anyone in deportation proceedings but like as part of this policy argument we should be detaining and deporting less people so that the people that are put into proceedings are able to have a lawyer because like the u.s holds itself out to be a democratic entity that has laws that we like where rule of law exists and where if you're put into a judicial proceeding you're afforded the right to a full and fair hearing and i think that history has shown us that that's not true but if that's something that we want to aspire to in the future then that necessarily means that every immigrant placed into deportation proceedings needs to be given a lawyer and if that's something that we don't want to spend money on then we also shouldn't be spending money on detaining people (laughs) <laughs> so what I thought was interesting about the NERP lawsuit was that part of what NERP was alleging was that the DOJ order violated the attorney's constitutional rights to free speech. 
and that impeded their ability to promote and defend the rights of immigrants in Washington state. And I think this is important to point out as a legal matter because I'm assuming the strategy behind that was that U.S. citizens have rights that we can hang the hook on for a lawsuit like this, whereas asserting the rights of non-citizens is actually just a lot harder. So it's easier to say that we're violating the attorney's constitutional rights to free speech than than that we're violating the constitutional rights of non-citizens because the extent to which the constitution applies to non-citizens is like really a gray area. Yeah, I think hearing that like spelled out is like, in one instance, it's like very creative. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like, okay, we actually like do not value, or it just demonstrates how we value certain status over other statuses. Yeah. And I think it shows the limits of advocacy in the courtroom because like, you know, I agree it's creative and I love creative arguments like that because I think I'll accept a win you know whatever it takes for us to get there but then also we need to be having other conversations about well what does that mean that we needed to use that legal strategy and how can we get to a place where we can respect the humanity of non-citizens and how can we get to a place where we can actually fully integrate non-citizens into our society and allow them to participate in our legal system i think this is why like yes the courtroom is a strategy but we can't end there because if we do we'll just end up internalizing the fucked up things that come out of the way the the law is structured right now Mm -hmm. yeah and i think i mean another thing to think about too is just like the fact that kind of when this lawsuit when this around the time that the cease and desist letter came out i'm I'm pretty sure department of justice was like threatening to cut the funding for the legal orientation program yeah yeah I mean, even if, even if we win this, or as we have, or believe we have, we may like not even have funding for this program. So what's what's the alternative, or what's the backup plan? Yeah, you know, and I think that that's really important because it leads back to this original question we were talking about of what are the constitutional rights of immigrants in deportation proceedings? Because Jeff Sessions was trying to say that they didn't deserve to have the very very bare due process rights that they currently have but yeah i think like if we don't like we really need to control the narrative because if we don't then we could have people like him coming out and being like well we don't the lop program doesn't provide you it it is not necessary because due process is already afforded within immigration courts and we need to be expanding the constitutional protections that um, that immigrants have. So the settlement, what the the NERP litigation ended in a settlement. It didn't end in a court order. And a settlement is what happens when the two parties decide, okay, we're not going to go to full trial on this. We have something to offer. You have something to offer. We can come to a compromise. And in this instance, the DOJ rescinded the rule that they had initially promulgated. And in exchange, now attorneys who are writing pro se motions need to list their name and their bar number whenever they're submitting those motions. And law graduates who aren't yet barred would then need to include the name and bar number of attorneys supervising them. And the DOJ will pay NERP 
$380,000 in cost and attorney's fees, which I love. Yay. I love, I love attorney's fees because <laughs> now that work that can go back into the good work that you all do. I wanted to ask you what you think the effect of the settlement will be. I have thoughts, but <laughs> I think probably the fact that now attorneys have to really identify who they are um, when they're writing or helping people submit uh, motions is probably going to cause like DHS to come down harder on you know kind of what's actually or come down harder on like the actual author of cause DHS to come down harder on the attorneys that are assisting providing the assistance yeah I was talking to a coworker of mine who was worried about how this like exposes the attorneys who do this ghostwriting to more liability like it it exposes you to a potential bar punishment because in in like saying your name and your bar number you're putting yourself out there as the author of this you're putting yourself out there as the person who provided this legal assistance and that's not to say that it's like attorneys are not providing yeah quality right services because yeah that is definitely happening <laughs> but i think it's it's just intimidating yeah. For the It'll have a chilling effect. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think what, the only thing I have to say about this is that um, I think that there will be more careful supervision of law graduates as a result of this. I think that's a good thing overall because I am really, really tired of high volume direct legal services places burning out their young law grads by not providing support. This is consistently an issue I've experienced in high volume direct legal services places and you know what now that i have to put a supervisor's name and bar number on the thing i submit i bet you i'm going to get way more careful supervision and that's a good thing because with this feedback i'll be able to grow <laughs> but other than that yeah i mean i'm curious to see what the chilling effect will be if there will be any at all and whether this will just move us to a place where like you know what if we do have to put our name and bar number maybe we should just be fighting for universal rep so that we can just do the whole thing legit as, right as what they is, say what is the difference between helping someone spend this many hours on a motion versus entering in on the case and you know taking the entire case obviously there there can be a, a time difference because a lot of these cases can drag on for a really long time but i think ultimately it could encourage more attorneys to actually enter in on the case yeah um I, just, I wanted to talk also about um, one pro of the pro se model because um, thinking about this, this debate of universal rep versus pro se makes me wonder, like, well, what kind of world do we want? Like, are lawyers even necessary? Maybe we should have a legal system that, like, should we have a legal system that requires representation from lawyers? Or do we want a system that utilizes clear language and procedures so that virtually any adult could understand it and represent themselves? Because the, I think of the bar as like a medieval guild because it makes it so that it controls who enters the profession and it allows us to place a monopoly on legal fees because of the fact that only this group of people that pass the bar can represent you legally, then it's kind of like controlling wages and it's kind of like a monopoly or it's controlling prices of legal services and it, it's kind of like a monopoly in my opinion and so and because of like the really high costs of lawyering fees 
it makes legal representation not accessible for people. And I think I would, I actually, do you want to get to a world where lawyers aren't necessary? Well, or maybe I just, maybe I just don't want to be a lawyer. Maybe that's what actually this is about. But no, but I think like, I, I do see the benefits of a world where we don't need lawyers because people can represent themselves. Yes. What do you think? I agree with that. I mean, I've always felt like that's the goal is that we're trying to put ourselves out of a job. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think every immigration lawyer thinks well, that. Yeah, <laughs> you I, and I, I think that. I that every, <laughs> every immigration lawyer thinks that, but that's definitely been my goal since going into law school. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about, like, okay, then if we do have a universal representation model, like, is that actually moving in that direction, or is that making people more dependent on attorneys? Right. And I don't know, it's, I don't know, it's so hard to try and make change that's radical, because how would we even get to a place where the legal system is that? You know, and what do we do in the meantime? And, like, that question of what do we do in the meantime leads us to things like the pro se model. And I think that's kind of, like, as a person who identifies as a radical lawyer, I think that is kind of my ongoing existential crisis of, like, how do we get to our utopic vision, but also how do we not leave behind the people that are currently struggling and currently the, the victims and survivors of this immigration system? And I really don't know where I stand on that because I've been doing direct legal services basically the whole time that I was in law school and the last job that I had was also direct legal services and it's probably what I'm going to continue doing. And it kind of is soul-sucking because you're just always reacting to the problems that are occurring and there's no space to reimagine a different type of legal system. and usually there's no space to try and fight for that either and i think that's just been one of the hardest things about doing direct legal services for me i think that is part of the important part of organizations that do impact litigation if they don't have a team that's doing direct services definitely you know building building with a team with another organization that does do the direct services because folks who do the direct client services are like seeing what's on the ground mm-hmm. and can inform the impact litigation. Yeah. And I think I think it probably just feels or actually in my experience, like it feels better to be at an organization that yes, does direct legal services but also like is out there in the community and like take seriously the leadership of directly impacted people. Like stuff like that makes me hopeful because staying in touch with activist groups and actually allowing them to inform strategy for example i've actually never been a part of a nonprofit that does that but this is like my this is my dream <laughs> i like that would i think actually make me feel a lot better about the work because i got really jaded really quickly feeling like all that i was doing i was just i felt like a little cog in the doj eoir wheel and i didn't f- i i mean i will say that i think the the radical transformative impact of the work that we do, I think, is being there with people when the government places these people in detention centers so that they will be forgotten. And I think being a part of the group of people that intentionally remembers, that intentionally holds space, and intentionally is there in solidarity with people and provides humanity in a really dehumanizing process is the radical impact that we have. So I will say that 
I believe in that wholeheartedly, but I think it's sometimes still not enough to fuel your soul and to fuel the continuing the work. And I think that's why, like, personally, I would want to work at a place where, yes, we do direct legal services, but also we work alongside activists who do have a liberatory vision in mind, who can lead our strategy. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> I think that's a great goal. <laughs> and I agree. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we need to do a lot more work focusing on, like, that being the base. Because I feel like a lot of organization talk about representing the people, but where, where is that pool of people coming from? Yeah. We would or, or what are the voices that they're actually, like, lifting up? And I think that gets complicated with the law in general, because, like, in impact litigation, a oh, lot yeah. of what you're doing is, like, trying to find this ideal client mm-hmm. who can, like, push a certain case forward. And is that actually representative of, like, the communities that we're trying to advocate with? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like, really, I really respect the work that Pangea does because they are an organization that does take on the quote-unquote unsympathetic client, but also goes to the media and talks about their unsympathetic client and tries to control the narrative and redirect the narrative. And I think that that's so invaluable. And I think that's also why I had Alejandra Pablos on the podcast a few weeks ago. And she talked about how she's just over trying to present herself as the perfect immigrant in front of the immigration judge to try and convince him that she's of good moral character because she's a human being who makes mistakes and should be loved regardless of that. And we all make mistakes and we should all be loved regardless of the mistakes that we make. (laughs) So, okay, that was kind of, I think that was supposed to be the pros of the pro se model, but it ended up still being the cons of the pro se model. But to move more formally into the cons of the pro se model, the complicity in perpetuating the myth that the immigration system and the courts are unbiased and just because we're given a limited amount of funding, we're not able to help everybody, but because of our presence, the argument can be made that due process does exist. And I think it arguably does stop momentum for the universal rep model. I mean, I think there are organizations that are simultaneously advocating for universal rep and are doing the pro se, but like I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't know where this argument goes because you could argue that if LOP didn't exist and everybody was just detained with no access to lawyers, that would create a crisis that people would respond to and care about. But that's kind of what I used. I used to believe in that more before Trump because then his presidency happened and like all the horrible things that I thought would make people rise up didn't really. I think there were some isolated instances of the airport activism that happened right after the Muslim ban. I think that, you know, there's stuff like that that happened, but also I'm just realizing more and more the limits of our capacity under capitalism. And I think people are upset, but I don't, I just, the like organized uprising didn't occur. So I actually, I maybe might have come harder, come down harder on the pro se model previously, but I think especially because nobody sees very few people see what happens in detention and so i could tragedies and death already occur within the detention centers so i don't know what taking the lp program would do i think i I could just see things getting even more medieval and even more just a rotating death center i you know i could just see that happening and people not 
changing it, not investing in it, not caring. Yeah. I also just want to acknowledge that it's like everyone's really exhausted. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right now. Yeah. Especially like this work was already really difficult and challenging and um, and exhausting, but I think more so now because it feels like all you can do is put out fires. Yeah. And just be in that constant reactive mode. So I I don't really know. Yeah, what kind of effect it would have. I mean, I think there was like a pretty big call to action by a number of organizations who were like, you cannot take away this funding for this yeah. basic service. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that was pretty inspiring just to see like the number of organizations coming together to really stop that. Yeah. I'm really exhausted too. And actually like me and my partner are planning on leaving the country in two years. We're like saving up so that we can fucking leave. Because it's, I'm really, I'm so tired from everything that I've seen. And he, when he was in Oakland, he was representing folks experiencing homelessness, applying for social security and disability benefits. And um, I think, you know, for reasons that might be obvious, it's, he was working with clients who were really near death. Um, and so he saw a lot of shit in the past two years. I saw a lot of shit in the past eight months and are both of us being so burned out made me wonder how to do this work sustainably and that's why i'm saying like i i do i think for me at least like doing direct legal services paired with community organizing i think would help because the one thing that gave me life or not the one thing that's too that's too harsh and inaccurate one of the things that really gave me life doing the direct legal services that i was doing just now was a community kyr that i did with the visitation groups that go to the detention centers because i was so inspired knowing that there's people who do care and there's people who are willing to spend their time with these folks who the government is trying to make us forget and that little thread is the only clarity that I've had about this question but I think in the future I want I do want to continue doing this work I think but I just want to be in a place where I can have a work-life balance where I can like continue to fulfill my soul so that I can avoid burnout and I also want to be in a place where we are talking about dismantling ice and we are talking and how do we get there and we are taking the lead from people who are directly impacted. That's, yeah, that's my working solution for the burnout. <laughs> and keeping your heart soft. My therapist said that that's really important. And I, like, she, she was a therapist for abused and neglected kids for, like, 20 years. And she said that the burnout rate for that profession is five years. So being there for 20 years is, like, really really amazing and she said that the way that she was able to do that was by keeping her heart soft she said that she didn't participate in the dark humor that oftentimes comes out in these spaces and she kept her heart soft and she i know it's kind of interesting it's kind of the opposite of what people say about drawing emotional boundaries but she i think kept her heart invested and that's what allowed her to do it for 20 years so yeah is there anything else that you want to share anything you feel like we haven't talked about I think a lot of the work ends up being, you know, translating from Spanish or any number of languages uh, into English to make sure that an individual is fully able to articulate um, their claim to the immigration judge. 
Yeah. And like the, like, I think different funders are different, but some require like really strict accounting of how many people you help, how many people you talk to, what was the outcome. And as there's like a professionalization of people who just keep spreadsheets and instead of, I don't know. I think I think we have to question the ethics of a person having a whole middle class salary based on keeping spreadsheets of how many people are helped by this money when there's people that are dying from this immigration system. Uh, there's people like what that person's salary could go to how many bonds? I mean, right now, maybe like one bond <laughs> because of how high bonds are being set. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it's important to talk about that because I think there's a lot of white people that benefit from the nonprofit industrial complex. There's a lot of people that build whole careers around participating in the nonprofit industrial complex. And if you're not a nonprofit that has a vision for working ourselves out of a job, then is that ethical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think generally, like the requirements for like applying for any type of grant or trying to convince a funder to donate money, what kind of story do you need to tell? Or how do you need to exploit pe- other people in order to obtain that funding to do the work? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that is always a constant question that I'm thinking about. And then, I mean, I think you mentioned, like, okay, we could be using, like, whatever that person's salary who, who may be responsible for reporting to pay for immigration bonds. But then are we just perpetuating this whole bond system by paying for their bonds and giving the government more money because where does that money ultimately end up like mm-hmm. how many people are actually able to get that bond money back mm-hmm. i think we can go down a rabbit hole no i know because it's like well but <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think they're really important questions and we should continue to question everything we're doing within our advocacy and continue trying to hold ourselves accountable yeah I agree, especially in high volume places, folks do not make the time for that reflection. And I think that also leads to burnout. If all this just stays in your head, you're not allowed to recognize it. I think it can become really toxic. Yeah, I definitely think that organizations need to make space for these conversations because it also just, you know, kind of helps you remember like why you're doing what you're doing. Right, (laughs) right understand the work better mm-hmm. and be part of moving the organization or the work in the direction of whatever goal you believe in. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also why the EOIR funding is problematic because maybe we don't have the conversation about abolishing ICE and abolishing detention centers because EOIR funds the cor- the program. And if they find out that we're like loudly saying that, they'll take the money away. You know, I think that who gives you money limits what you can do. Okay, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Anything you feel like we didn't touch on? I did want to go back to kind of the experience of being a Salvadoran American. Oh, yeah. In or Salvadoran in the legal field. Oh, and, yes, we didn't really talk like about that. Or just higher education in general. Mm-hmm. Because I also remembered an experience that I had in undergrad where I went to school in Seattle 
and there was a scholarship program which I did benefit from and I'm very grateful for that <laughs> and I and they had like an annual breakfast for the funders and I went to the breakfast every year because it was free food and I was a college student mm -hmm. and that was great mm -hmm. but the story that they always chose to focus on for the student the scholars was the story of this was like the one narrative of like children of immigrants mm -hmm. and I just like it was really frustrating to me because it really like I mean that's not our only story mm -mm. Right? people come from so many different backgrounds as like children of immigrants and um, it just it was really frustrating that that was like the one story that they chose to highlight every single time and I, I know that it children of farm workers is like a very common thing in that state or just like farm workers in general are like a big um, part of the population in Washington state mm -hmm. um, but it was just it was really frustrating and I also felt like it kind of like pitted students of color against each other too in terms of like feeling like who's worthy of a scholarship and like what is the what is the narrative that we're choosing to highlight as like someone who's worthy of a scholarship or the worthy person of color mm -hmm. so yeah I just think it's it's like important to just kind of reflect on what stories are being highlighted as well and I mean, I, the whole the whole idea of storytelling is like complicated mm -hmm. and exploitative, but I think that's it's interesting how how like we just continue to be exploited through higher education, even though we've like been working really hard to get there, and like it can really it can really trip you up because especially if you're like a first generation student, you're like, oh my goodness, like they want to highlight me and appreciate me and like. Yes, you should totally be a part of that if that's something you want to do. But I think it can have, like, some negative consequences. Yeah. Because I think for me, like, the reason I get frustrated when my history is erased is that it's a very specific history and involves the U.S. And so I am always really offended when people don't know about the Salvadorian Civil War because people, so many people died. And so many people are here only for that reason. And I just want to highlight that because I think sometimes the narratives of migration are like, you're leaving this terrible, like, sh you know, to use Trump's words, like shithole country, and all you want to do is live in the US. And like, that's actually like not true. Like my family loved El Salvador so much and came here because they didn't see a safe future for themselves there. And your story reminded me of a time I was in law school. We were reading a case in Crim, and it was about activists that had, like, poured blood on some... <laughs> I don't know if it was blood. They, they did... They staged... It was a direct action where they, like, like, went into a government building, and I forget which, and, like, poured something on the papers, and it was meant to be... Oh, because... Yeah, it was the, the like symbolic statement was supposed to be like this is blood money because of the U.S. involvement in the Salvadorian Civil War, and so then uh, the professor was like, "How many people are aware of the Salvadorian Civil War conflict in the '80s?" And I think like me and like one other person raised their hand in a room of like like 120 people, and I went home that day after class and cried because I 
couldn't believe that these people who in many ways benefit from who benefit from that exploitation and who get to call themselves U.S. citizenship and get all the protections from that and they're not even aware of why I'm here and why my family here is here and what their government did and the atrocities that their government created in El Salvador and I think like the importance of having your history recognized is sometimes discounted as trivial like oh you're snowflake feelings like you don't feel recognized but it's like it's very real because what happened was a tragedy and it feels like your life and your family's life doesn't matter when it's not even worth recounting right it's not worth remembering and the fact that we're still seeing you know consequences of that civil war which the United States has still failed to take accountability for. Yeah. And it's that's what fuel like, you know, the amnesia is what allows people to pit MS thirteen as these like vicious gang of people who are animal like because then oh like the barbarity of US intervention is erased. So it's just MS thirteen and their barbarity that we get to talk about that we are talking about now. And it's it's ahistorical it's incorrect and it's hurtful i also had one more thing to say about just like mentorship Mm -hmm. Um, mentorship (laughs) i actually think that the first latina mentors i had were wasn't until law school okay and i mean i think that's like pretty common until like you get to higher education because i didn't know a lot of people i didn't really know any lawyers um, my parents didn't go to college or definitely didn't go to law school but I think that was one thing that I really really appreciated about Washington which is where I went to law school is that I felt like because there were fewer Latinx folks there the community the legal community is a lot stronger mm-hmm. and some of the folks in the legal community are really um, active in wanting to give back to their community and like running legal clinics and you know being involved um, versus just going to happy hours and um, I just I thought that was really important for me in Washington and that's something that like ultimately drove me back to Washington or was a big part of the reason why I moved back to Seattle um, last June was because of the really supportive legal community there Latinx legal community and oh I mean Although they are, yeah, it's it's a much more supportive legal community. Again, there's still not very many Salvadoran attorneys. So I think it's always really important um, for us to reach out to other aspiring law students, future attorneys, mm-hmm. and especially where it's like folks from similar backgrounds. Yeah. And I hope that we're reaching young Salvadoran women who want to go and no young Salvadoran women and femmes who want to go to law school through this podcast because there's probably a lot of people who have never met a Salvadoran woman who's a lawyer and are wondering if they can do it for that reason and I hope that they know that there are two successful people doing it two is the count so far (laughs) I'm just kidding there's probably ten I know one other. <laughs> okay, it's three, so <laughs> it's good. And as negative as we may seem about immigration law, again, I think it's just like, it's a, it's really exhausting times, but 
I think we just have to remember that there are people who need like advocacy, need yeah. help advocating right now, and we can make that difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's always the conclusion. It's like, I love that the people that I bring on are always like, okay, so this might have been really negative, but you should still do it. I like that because I'm just like, yeah, it's all going to shit. Bye. (laughs) No, but I think it's true because obviously, like, the fact that we're continuing to do this must mean that there is some value in what we do. And because we don't do things without careful thought and reflection. And, um, you're right people do need advocates people do need defense from people who are trained in the law and who know how to use the language to manipulate create good legal outcomes so if you want to go to law school you should still go to law school but i also advocate for becoming a bi accredited rep because you can do all the work in immigration law without the debt yes that is (laughs) real real yeah that's the tea (laughs) okay so if there isn't anything else you want to add i think we can end it here because then you have to prep for your party (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i guess just if anyone wants to reach out feel free yeah we can like post your social media on the post when we release it if you want great okay cool bye everyone bye thank you